You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, Will. Hello, David. Hello, Internet. And welcome to episode 58 of the Common Descent Podcast. Yeah. In this episode, we're going back to history, this time specifically paleontological history, which we haven't done very much at all on this podcast, believe it or not. Post-history, not prehistory. We are talking about perhaps the most infamous event slash series of events, the most infamous period of time, maybe in all of paleontology, certainly in Western paleontology. Today, folks, we are talking about the Bone Wars. A, a name and an event that are far more dramatic than you would ever expect. You know, the name. it sounds like the kind of name you would give a scientific debacle to overhype it. Yeah, like... Like, like oh, to... they call it the Bone Wars. This is possibly the most ridiculous <laughs> series of events in, in paleontological history. It's preposterous. It... it, it absolutely had the name has that feeling of someone going all right but we got to spice it up somehow like we got to give it a good name for the byline and And no it is probably way more ridiculous (laughs) than you could possibly imagine for the uninitiated the bone wars are a period of time spanning the better part of three decades in the late 1800s that were marked by a rivalry between two early american paleontologists edward drinker cope and othniel charles marsh who spent that time just feuding, battling it out in papers, out on dig sites. It, it's, it's this like Wild West tale. It's full of action and adventure and danger and just the most juvenile behavior by grown men that you could imagine from upstanding members of the scientific community. It's a hilarious story that would be much more hilarious if it weren't also just like... Really awkward and embarrassing and true. (laughs) We are going to condense this enormous topic into an episode overview, as is our custom. Uh, It it really did lay the foundations for American paleontology as we know it. And it's just a a remarkably fun story. This subject was requested several times. uh, Some variation on the Bone Wars or Martian Cope's rivalry. By Ryan, Jonathan, Brendan, Jaster, Mark, and our patron Cheryl. Thank you all for your requests. Hopefully, by the end of the episode, you are satisfied. (laughs) Before we begin, we have a couple of announcements. As is tradition, we have a Patreon. And the podcast is supported in large part by the donations we get on the Patreon, as are some of our extra podcastal bonusy things that we get to do. Yeah. If you're a patron at a certain level, you get your name shouted out on the podcast. So this episode here, as we welcome the month of April, we are happy to welcome Jose and Angie to the patronage. Welcome to the Baskin Coil. Welcome to the fold. A few other reminders. There is a store. There is a Common Descent merch store up on Zazzle. Check the episode description for a link if you want your mugs, t-shirts, uh, what else is on there? Magnets, phone cases, stone magnets, which I found out was a thing. Oh, well, uh, there you go. 
key, with our logo keychains and mugs and other things like that. A small percentage of the proceeds go to us, but mostly it's fun to give people the opportunity to wear our logo around. So if that's something you're interested in, check it out. If you are a patron uh, above a certain level, you can also listen to more bonus news from March. We put up another bonus news episode. And if you're a patron, this episode will be the first one. We're going to try another new thing. All of our patrons will be able to read a post with basically what we're kind of thinking of as director's notes yes. for this episode. So sort of our, in this case, my, I was the one who planned this episode, thinking process on how did this episode come together and what did we want to focus on? Just a short little bit of notes for those of you who like the behind the scenes kind of stuff. I think that's all of the announcements for this episode. Am I forgetting anything? That's all I can think of. All right. Well, then, before we dive into some paleontological history, let's dive into some recent paleontological history. Every episode, we like to pick a few tidbits from paleontological or related news to keep us all up to date. Hey, Will. Yeah? What news you got? My first bit of news is about a bird fossil found in China that still had an egg preserved inside. If you stopped this discussion of the news right now, I'd be satisfied. Right? That's awesome. (laughs) It doesn't get much better than that. (laughs) But please don't stop. Keep going. So this is research done by Elida Bayou et al. in Nature Communications. And the article we'll be linking to is National Geographic by Michael Greshko. This is a bird, a new species of bird, Avimaya schweitzerae, that is dated back to the Cretaceous 115 million years ago from northwest China. It was discovered a little while back, actually, in the mid-2000s. So this isn't like a brand new discovery, so to speak, but it's a new analysis of it. They noted it was weird. It had a membrane-like structure on it, something covering it or part of the fossil that was odd so they saved it aside and it went to storage in china's institute of vertebrate paleontology and paleoanthropology the ivpp yeah in beijing and then it sat there till 2008 when uh value arrived and was looking for a first project to work on and so they went through storage came across this fossil and kind of have it like a oh right this thing take a look at this and found out what the membrane that they thought was soft tissue or potentially soft tissue was actually eggshell. Fractured eggshell within the skeleton of the bird. This would make it the first fossil bird known to science with an unlaid egg preserved. That's so cool. Oh, it's real. And we'll link to articles as we always do. Go look at the pictures. It's so cool looking. (laughs) It's beautiful. It's wonderful. Now... This can open lots of doors. It can teach about the the process of developing an egg for these ancient birds, uh, the relationship of the, the bird to egg features. I mean, there's lots you can learn about a bird by looking at its egg. So there's lots that we could learn. But some of the things they initially found is they analyzed the shell and it showed signs of developmental issues. So hmm. so- something went wrong. And maybe why the egg was unlaid and could even be what killed the bird. That's that's much more difficult to say, but it there's a possibility. What they found is that parts of the egg, some areas, the eggshell was up to six layers thick. Oh, that seems like too many. 
yeah, that's five more layers than you need to be an egg. <laughs> <laughs> that's over-engineered. And in modern birds, we see something known as egg binding, which is if some sort of trauma is induced, if something happens to the, the mother bird, it can cause the female to delay laying the egg and increase the layers, start adding eggshell layers for, for protection or just it's a biological response to trauma. Our bodies do lots of weird things due to trauma. This often has the side effect of suffocating the embryo. It makes the eggshell egg too thick to oh, process oxygen. It pour, yeah. It's not porous enough. It's not yeah. porous enough anymore. In rare occurrences, this can be fatal to the mother. Maybe that's what happened here. Once again, we can't know for sure. But they did note that they did not find an embryo in the egg fossil. So it does look like this mm. affected the, the, the viability of this egg. Which is interesting because you'd expect with that high level of preservation that if there were an embryo in there, you could see at least some evidence of it. Yes, indeed. So something went wrong with this, with this bird. Whatever it was, we can't be sure. But something definitely happened there. But it gets more interesting. They also found evidence of preserved medullary bone. <gasps> oh, exciting. Yes. Now, medullary bone is a special type of bone found in female birds. When they're getting ready to create eggs, they build up bone deposits in areas of their skeleton that are going to provide much of the calcium to go toward the eggshell. Yeah, they stockpile that calcium for making in the egg it's like building up fat for the winter but you're building up bone to transition into egg which is yes. crazy intense birds like wow Come that's, on, <laughs> that's crazy <laughs> now this is something that is typically very hard to identify because a it's temporary it's yep. only while they are sexually active it's only during reproductive times so you can't find it just anytime you find a bird fossil and Diseases or injuries can often create similar looking bone growths or bone buildups or features. So it can be tricky, but we have identified in the fossil beforehand or in the fossil record beforehand. There's been pterosaurs that have been noted with potential medullary bone, but the one that keys into this study is in 2005, a paper by Mary Schweitzer published on T-Rex medullary bone yep which is why the species name is what it is for this bird it was named after this study being such an iconic and important finding in paleontology ah, named after mary schweitzer herself indeed oh, which she was cool. quoted saying that's super awesome <laughs> like in the in the yeah. article she, she thought it was great <laughs> i've gotten to meet mary schweitzer and she was a super cool person it's and that's such a cool thing to find t-rex yeah. medullary bone get out of here now the Medullary bone they found in this bird doesn't show any signs of disease and is where they would expect it to be. So it's, it, it is in the typical bird spots. They will have to do more analysis to make sure and confirm. But if this is true, it would be the first bone, the first bird fossil with preserved egg and medullary bone to get like both of those together would be a, another first that's for this two fossil. Firsts. Yeah. That's that's a bunch of firsts. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And they hope to find out more with molecular analysis. If they can analyze the eggshell and find out colors or shading, they might be able to tell what the nesting strategy was 
Were they hiding it? Was it blending in? Were they brooding oh, on it? Interesting. So they're hoping that maybe with further analysis, we might be able to learn about the behavior of these nesting birds or get an inference. Very cool. This is exciting because, among all the many other reasons, not only does it tell us about reproductive biology and ancient organisms, which is very difficult to get at, Absolutely. but we discussed back in episode 30 about coprolites. Mm-hmm. That it's very difficult to link trace fossils. In that episode, we were talking about poops, but eggs as well, to the maker. Yes. And one of the very... Like, this is one of the only ways that you can definitively say, this kind of animal laid this kind of egg. Yeah. Because even when you find babies in an egg, it can be real hard to link an embryo to an adult species. Well, it's kind of like if we put Which a, we discussed uh, in episode 31. Yeah, 33, a... 33. Ontogeny, I got it wrong. 33. <laughs> Shut it down. Cut that out. Shut it we'll down. Cut it out. Well, we're going to edit that <laughs> so I sound cool. Because the, the morphology changes so dramatically from newborn to adult. Mm-hmm. So finding eggshell in a bird, that, this kind of bird, this kind of egg, which is really exciting. Unless this bird had a really big last meal. swallowed it whole without cracking it this is a really intriguing and hopefully even further enlightening finding very nice my first bit of news is a significantly larger animal from california a new species the first in many decades of north american mastodon Ooh. This is research published in Peer J by Alton Dooley et al., a bunch of folks uh, over at the Western Science Center in Southern California. Shout out to the folks at the Western Science Center. We will also link to an article by Gene Timmons at Gizmodo. So the American mastodon, Mammut Americanum, is found all over North America. If you think of a North American mastodon, you are probably thinking of the American mastodon, Mammut Americanum. It is sort of the be-all, end-all all across the Pleistocene, the Ice Age of North America. However, these researchers were surveying mastodon remains across North America, specifically out west, and found reason to suspect that some of what has been formerly considered American mastodon is not. (gasps) They identified it as a distinct species, which they have called Mammut pacificus, the Pacific Mastodon. Cool. They identified uh, several different features that distinguish the Pacific Mastodon from the American Mastodon, including the shape of the teeth, the structure of the pelvis. Apparently, the Pacific Mastodon doesn't have lower tusks, chin oh, tusks, okay. yeah, like yeah, yeah. many Mastodons did, uh, and some other differences. Now, when naming a new species, right, it can be difficult to, to decide, you know, when do you have a new species? In fact, there is a quote in the article, the, the the news article, that I really liked by Adrian Lister, who is a proboscidean researcher who I believe was not part of this study. Uh, the quote is, naming a new species, especially in the fossil record, can be as much a decision as a discovery. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good way to put it. I like that because in this case, none of the skeletons were new. These are all specimens that were in museums, most of them in the Western Science Center itself. Over 100 mastodons were excavated back in the 1990s from Diamond Valley Lake. 
And indeed, just a little while ago, the Western Science Center had a big exhibit, the Valley of the Mastodons exhibit. That was this whole big, awesome uh, public interaction project and research pro- uh, uh, event that went on over there that focused on the mastodon discoveries over there in Southern California. Nice. When these researchers were looking at these mastodons, the mastodons from Southern California, uh, and maybe some from nearby areas, not only did they find that these features were consistently showing up in this particular part of the country, but that they were consistent across the Pleistocene, right across a good 2 million years of time. So they said, well, you have this this same differences, these same anatomical differences restricted to one geographic area, consistent across time, which seems to be a pretty good indication that these are not genetically mixing very much with the American mastodon elsewhere in the country. And if you're not genetically mixing, that is one of the many things we use to call something a different species. Yep, that that's that's kind of step one. This came as a surprise. Alton Dooley himself expresses in the the some of the articles that I've read that this is a surprise because Pleistocene megafauna are so well studied that they didn't expect to find surprises. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, it's we thought we had pretty well looked at that aspect. And one of the reasons they were able to make this realization is because of the huge sample size of mastodons in that area of California and across the country. That you have, if if you had only had one American mastodon and one Pacific mastodon, you may not have realized that they were different. And indeed, nobody did up until this particular study. I think that's, first off, very cool to find something new to something we thought we knew. That's always exciting when something that was kind of just like, oh, yeah, 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 that group. And then we go, oh, wait, oh. But it's also, I think, really important to note that this happens very often, not just in paleontology, but just in science in general, that, you know, you discover something or you're researching something and you find a, a you know, pretty good you know uh, analysis or overview of it. But then as your knowledge grows, all of a sudden a new pattern forms that you couldn't see until you were looking at enough information. Yes. A lot of times it works that way where until there's, there's almost like a, a tipping point where it's until you have enough, you would, you literally, it would have been weird if you had suggested it earlier because there would not actually have been enough for you to make the suggestion. But now it's almost obvious. Very common. That's that. I, I like that. This is a really good example of that. You know, an animal we thought we knew very well, and then we found enough that also we went, hey, I'm starting to notice a weird trend that disagrees with something we've, we've been holding as uh, as true for a while now. This is significant because it tells us a bit about the ecosystem differentiation in the Pleistocene, that American... Ma- this, this, they mention, rules out American Mastodon from the West Coast. All of the Mastodons that were previously included under American Mastodon are this new species. And one last note, the Western Science Center over in Hemet in Southern California has a mascot, very prolific on Twitter, named Max (laughs) Mastodon. (laughs) And Max is the holotype for the Pacific Mastodon, which Max was very excited about on Twitter. So congratulations to Max for being named a holotype. What a prestigious honor. Well done, Max. 
Good Way job. to go. <laughs> Speaking of big animals, and I'm sure many of you have probably already seen this one make a pass. My next bit of news is about Scotty, the T-Rex, toted by many of the titles as the biggest T-Rex, which we're going to talk about. Extraordinary claims. This is a specimen of Tyrannosaurus rex that, according to certain estimates, may be potentially the largest and maybe oldest, or at least one of the largest and oldest, which is pretty much agreed upon. It is definitely an extremely large, extremely old individual. Now, the research... Old, now, old, you mean old in terms of its development. Yes, of de- not de- developmental age, yes. old, an old, an old dude, 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 in quotes, who knows. Yeah, this was a very long-lived individual. The research we'll be looking at is by Scott Pearsons et al. in the Anatomical Record. And the article we'll be linking to is by, uh, let me check again, Michael Greshko in National Geographic. <laughs> I feel like I've heard that name before. It, it's, it, we, we mention it every now and We're then. We're going to have to start charging Michael right? <laughs> for all this publicity. <laughs> and I will also be mentioning uh, a post in Scientific American by Riley Black that discusses this topic from, a, from another point of view. So, discovered in Saskatchewan, Canada... In 1991, which, much like our my last bit of news, is not recent, you might note. Oh, yeah. Same, same with the Pacific Mastodon. These were yeah. sitting around for a while. Been around for a bit. Now, the reason Scotty's just now popping up in the news is it took them a couple of decades to get it out of the rock Ooh. <laughs> that, they, that they excavated it from. And it's only been recently that they've been able to actually fully research the skeleton that they have. Uh, now, this is, uh, you know, toward the end of the Cretaceous, as T-Rex is, so 68 million years ago. And it gained its name from the bottle of scotch they used to celebrate uh, its discovery. <laughs> <laughs> of course it did. This was actually discovered right around the same time as Sue, you know, the quote-unquote previous record holder, as I'm sure a lot, a lots of people will see uh, that those words thrown around. After excavating and getting it out of the rock, they've discovered that Scotty was 65% complete, which is very significant. Nice. That's awesome. It included skull, hip material, some of the uh, ribs, leg, and tail bones as well. So a good amount of the skeleton was there. Like I said, very large, very old. They estimate the length to be 42 and a half feet long. And this is why you see the biggest thing in the titles, because that stretches just past the typical size estimate for Sue, which is around 40 feet. It's not like it's blowing Sue out of the water. <laughs> yeah, this is technicalities. Boop, boop. But a couple of vertebrae. This is why you keep seeing the uh, the the news articles for Scotty right, putting right, that, right. that on the title. The age was estimate was come to by using histology, which we've mentioned before. That's when you take slices of bone and look at the layers, the growth rings of the bone to see if you have fast growth or slow growth or all old bone. You know, if they're basically done growing and Scotty showed very old bone, which gave them an age estimate of 28 years old because it actually matched the histology of another T-Rex specimen that came to that age estimate. So almost 30 years old, which for T-Rex is actually 
very old and roughly about the what same they as estimate Sue, isn't it? That's the same as Sue. Yep. Okay. Yep. Huh. So big T Rexes are getting to be almost thirty. It seems is what the the evidence of these these specimens are showing us, which could mean that you know predatory like the fact that we keep finding these old you know thirty year old almost 30 year old t-rex uh might suggest that predatory dinosaurs got older than previously expected you know that there there was a higher age range than the growth rates made us initially hypothesize one of the other interesting things is that scotty had a long hard life scotty has lots of signs of injury broken ribs that have sh- that have healed from their injuries so misshapen due to the break in the healing uh, a massive growth in between two teeth that is suggested of infection. Uh, that's often the results of an infection is it can cause your bone to overgrow or swell while the infection's happening or the healing's happening. And some broken tailbones that seem to potentially be from a bite, potentially from another large predator. You know, so maybe another Tyrannosaurus. I'm picturing those really big, really old crocs. Yes, they're that just when, gnarled. When you see a big croc and it's like, you've been in a bunch of fights and yeah. you won all of them. It's just, just <laughs> everything, there's scar tissue everywhere and they're just yeah. knobby and like, they look like a really old piece of wood. <laughs> and <laughs> Scotty has a lot of those features, which could give us information about what the the life of T-Rex would be like. They It doesn't seem like they had easy lives. You know, even though they were a big predator, they were not... They, they were not just having an easy time being that big. They were having to fight for it. The weight estimate, which is one of the things that a bunch of people are pointing to that really stands out because uh, there's a quote in the paper that was talking about the fact that T-Rex can range from kind of slim to kind of bulky and that Scotty really leans on that bulky side of the okay. of the scale using femur measurements they estimated the weight. Uh, this is a, a common practice. You can often get a rough weight estimate by looking at the femur, which is going to be supporting much of the weight. So using those uh, calculations, they came out to a weight estimate of 19,500 pounds, which That's- is... Hefty. 10 tons just ten just shy tons. of 10 tons exactly wow. and this that's was a, a big elephant like this that's was a, that's a, a good size modern elephant and this is because the femur was eight inches across Ooh! <laughs> wow this is a hefty t-rex that's which no one boy. is arguing with once again this is 900 pounds heavier than sue's estimates typically came out to so once again why we're seeing those titles claiming that it's the biggest yeah now, they acknowledge this bone me- measuring is not foolproof. Animals don't just use their bones to passively hold up their weight. There's also other stresses that go into it. And as has been mentioned multiple times about T-Rex, they are often known as very running focused. They seem to have very powerful legs to be very mobile. So the beefier femur could be to give them those that running power rather than just hold up weight. So that could skew the estimate. So this this by no means is hard numbers. These are all estimates based off of what they have. And body mass is also just one way of judging size. I've seen another things point out that not all 
animals are shaped the same. Not all predatory dinosaurs are shaped the same. So just because it has a hefty femur doesn't mean it's carrying its weight the same way. In the the Scientific American article, uh, Riley pointed out that Spinosaurus is a great example of how you, you can't judge a big dinosaur the same because it's longer than T-Rex, but it completely shaped differently. It's got right. a weird anatomy, so it is carrying its weight in a very different way. Also pointed out in that article, basically, Riley was trying to make the point that Scotty's awesome, Scotty's big, but we shouldn't we shouldn't go around just claiming that it is now the big T-Rex on the block because there's a lot of variation. First off, Sue is 90% complete. Yeah. Versus 65. So the estimates for Sue are probably a little bit more solid. And if you added the rest of the 40%, those extra two feet of length could easily shift with, as you said, a couple of vertebrae here or there. Yeah. And also, what two feet, yes, that's even if that's true, that is technically longer. Yes. But this is a 40-foot animal. Like, not and 900 pounds? Yeah, technically you are half a ton heavier, but you're a 10-ton animal. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Like, did you have a big lunch that day? Absolutely. And that's that's one of the points that Riley makes is the weight, the old weight estimates for Sue and the original weight estimates for Scotty are within a range of error that they they could be argued to be basically the same weight. We don't have the full skeleton, so claiming that those two feet means Scotty is longer is not for sure. One of the points that I thought made it really well is these aren't characters whose stats we are reading. <laughs> yeah. They're, as, as, as it was put in the article, they are not movie monsters. They're not kaiju that you can say, Godzilla is this tall because I read it from the director's notes, you know. It, these are animals. The reason we see those titles, and I loved this quote, the title T-Rex found 28 years ago is about as big as other T-Rex isn't a very good title. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's super neat to picture Sue and Scotty as the two. Yeah. The two. Well, it's what's fascinating is how close they are. That's the thing that I kept thinking is if you were to somehow magically stand next to Scotty and Sue and get to see them side by side, you wouldn't be able to tell me which one was bigger. No. You you would just be like, wow, those are both terrifyingly huge. I bet you could hear it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of things that are overhyped in the news, my last bit of news has been, is, is a very, very cool fossil site that has been very controversial over the last several days. Uh, and if you're if you're in on the the Dino News stuff, I'm, you may have seen it. This is a fossil site discovered in North Dakota that might preserve more or less the day of the asteroid impact at the end of the Cretaceous. Ooh! <laughs> now stick with me. This is research by Robert De Palma et al. in PNAS. We are going to link to an article by and stop me if you've heard this one before. Michael Greshko, National Geographic. Oh, hey. Cool guy. In North Dakota, this is a site that has been called the Tannis Site. It is located on a private ranch within the Hell Creek Formation. This is the formation that preserves the very end of the Cretaceous, including the time leading right up to the KPG boundary. Episode 5, we discussed the big extinction event. 
it has been interpreted as a river valley or estuary site where you've got fresh water, perhaps near the, the shoreline of the Western Interior Seaway. And this particular site appears to date right about to the KPG layer. The evidence of this comes in part, I believe it was dated, but it also includes impact evidence. So uh, we talked about in episode five, in the layers uh, that, are, that are left behind by that asteroid impact, you get shocked quartz and you get little glass spherules called tectites, little shards of glass that are formed during the, the eruption, the, the, the impact event. Which is intense. It also preserves this thick deposit with fish and sharks and plants and, and there's burrows in there. So it is this sort of near shore water sediment site. A few things that are interesting about it. Number one, there are ocean animals in the deposit like ammonites. All right. But there are also trees. Oh. And freshwater creatures. So you have this interesting mixture of ocean and land. <laughs> uh, the sediment appears to have been swiftly deposited. There's evidence of rapid motion. The tectites, those shards of impact-created glass, have been found on the site embedded in amber, which suggests that this site was formed... Right, that those fossils were buried around the same time as that impact, and a bunch of the fish have tectites clogging their gills. Oh wow. These are biological fossils that appear to have interacted directly with the aftermath of the asteroid impact. In addition to that, that rapid motion of the water and the mixing of marine and, and, and land fossils so now you might be thinking tsunami which the authors address i have to admit i did immediately picture the scene from iron giant where hogarth is in the tree <laughs> <laughs> now the authors point out that because of the close relationship of the impact materials the tsunami should have taken several hours longer than the impact materials to get there so they're suggesting instead that this might be a deposit left behind by what's called a seiche wave, which is basically sloshing, flooding of the sea, caused by the preposterous earthquakes set off by the impact. So not tsunamis in the proper sense that would have had to travel across the sea to get there, but the whole sea just rocked, like if you, if you stomped on the floor of a bathtub. Like a, a really drastic, sudden high tide. Yes. Now, let's pause here for just a moment to point out that if that is true, and the, the paper seems to make a good case for it, that's awesome. Yeah. This <laughs> is an intense. ecosystem that appears to have organisms killed and deposit deposited as a direct result of the asteroid impact. This is a site that could have been formed that day. That's so crazy. That's just... Ah! Now, <laughs> I mentioned that this was controversial, and the controversy is less about the paper and more about the way that it was publicized. Oh. So there's been a lot of chit-chat on the internet between paleontologists and science communicators 
Uh, Riley was weighing in. Uh, a number of other scientists were weighing in. The story dropped in The New Yorker several days before the publication came out. Ah. Which is generally a no-no. Remember our fake fossils episode, episode 49. Yep. I was we've just learned, say. We've learned about what happens when you try to do that. <laughs> also, a bunch of the stuff that's mentioned in the New Yorker story isn't in the paper. Ooh. So you'll see headlines about a dinosaur graveyard, but there are no that that's not in the paper. And Ooh. it sounds like maybe there's more study yet to come. There's more publications that might have that. But mismatch between the journal and the, the journalism and the paper is not great. Nope. People have also pointed out that there's been a bit of there's the, 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 the some of the reporting has been focusing more on the personalities than the science. And that uh, I saw one allege that the authors were not crediting the original discoverers of the site. Ooh. So there's a lot of there's a lot of controversy bouncing around. The site appears to be a really cool site. I haven't seen many people arguing that it's not a cool site. Yeah, that this is not something that is interesting that we should be looking right. at. Right. But the way it's been rolled out has has raised a lot of eyebrows in terms of rush to the media and overhyping and and theatrics. It, it basically which, Yes. Well, and it, you know, it, it threatens to mislead the general public and it threatens to leave out certain names and overexpose certain other names potentially. So you guys, you know, that's, we don't, we, we, we tend to shy away from sensationalism when we can. Well, Just the, like with the T-Rex. Yes. Most of the articles about Scotty handle the information pretty well, but the titles are very sensational. You run into really big issues when the article about your study does not match everything the study is saying. Because now the question comes in, which information should we factor in and should we ignore? And for the public, that becomes extremely difficult when they are not part of the dialogue. Now, the article that will include the National Geographic article does a very good job. Now, you know, the publication's out. So there now there's a bunch of articles that do a great job talking about what the paper is actually about. But yes, the rollout was a bit sketchy. So we'll see what more comes out of that site. Very excited to hear more about it. Uh, hopefully the sketchiness clears up and we can learn all that there is to learn about that. What sounds like an absolutely amazing fossil a site. Truly incredible find. Holy cow. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of sensationalism, have I got a story for you. This is the equivalent of a paleontology Jerry Springer now, yeah, episode. pretty much. <laughs> now that we've 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 cautioned against sensationalism in paleontology, let's talk about <laughs> perhaps the most sensationalist era of our fine field of science. The original cautionary tale. The story of Marsh and Cope. Will, how much do you know about the Bone Wars? I, I know, like, I know some of the more famous, you know, events that happened. Like, some of the things they did to one another. And I know generally what the the animosity was or the, the, the competitiveness was. I don't fully know how it got started. 
and I don't know the chronology of yeah. of it all. Those are those are the main things. Is I I know it happened. I know they were real jerks to one another, and that <laughs> a lot of terrible things happened to a lot of cool fossils. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those tales that is legendary. Yeah, it really people is. People have heard about it, but a lot of the details end up getting muddled. There's mm-hmm. a lot of apocryphal tales. There's a lot of you know he said he said yes kind of scenarios. I learned a lot while diving into it. So we're going to now this is a huge story. There yes. is you could fill a book and indeed I have one with me. <laughs> uh some of my info came from a book called The Bone Hunter's Revenge: Dinosaurs, Greed and the Greatest Scientific Feud of the Gilded Age. Good title. By David Raines Wallace. Yeah, it's good stuff. Cool book. I read it a long time ago and I skimmed back through it uh in preparation for this. I'll be referring to that a bit. We're going to go over the highlights of this legendary tale. But first, let's set the stage. Paleontology did not come to the Americas proper until around the time that Cope and Marsh were getting their start. Uh, As we went over in episode 56, the 1700s was the time that scientists finally acknowledged that extinction was a thing. Yes. And thus we're finally able to really understand what fossils were. The word paleontology is apparently first used in the early 1800s. And in 1842, the word dinosaur was coined for the very first time by Richard Owen. In the early 1800s is when we start to see the work by the early paleo pioneers like Mary Anning and William Buckland as they start identifying some of the earliest recognized familiar things, right? Marine reptiles Mm -hmm. and pterosaurs and dinosaurs. The early to middle 1800s is when we see a lot of this arguing about geologic history and catastrophism and transmutation and all those other things we discussed in episode 56. Darwin publishes on the origin of species in 1859. The mid-1800s, this is where we are. Yes. We are just coming around to this understanding of Earth history, of extinction, of evolution. Evolution's not even really a, a concept that, that's being talked about a whole lot yet until Darwin publishes uh, and, and brings it to the mainstream in a big way. And most of this work, most of this early paleo stuff is being done in Europe. Mm-hmm. Mary Anning, William Buckland, Richard Owen, Darwin, these are all names from over in Europe. But American paleontology was just getting its start. In 1858, the year before Darwin published On the Origin of Species, the first complete dinosaur skeleton was discovered in the Americas, Hadrosaurus fulcii from Haddonfield, New Jersey. Nice. A new era of paleontology was was beginning here in the mid to late 1800s in North America. Not much had been done yet. Obviously, all the scientists were hearing about all this exciting stuff coming from across the pond. And it was into this world that we meet our contenders. <laughs> this is a an aspect of, of paleontology history that I, I don't think a lot of people tend to think about or realize is that paleontology, like fossils didn't just become a thing that was studied across the world. It It has kind of had little pocket moments where different countries have kind of gone oh hey we should also start looking 
Yes. And we should like <laughs> that's when people ask why why are all the cool stuff coming from China? Like why is why all the cool dinosaurs? Look, because China's in a lot of areas is having its fossil renaissance. Yes, absolutely. And, and things are getting kicking kicking off over there as we speak. So things are being discovered for the first time because now there are people looking for them. Yeah, so this is at a time where most now most of the famous dinosaurs come from North America. Yes. So name a dinosaur probably wasn't known yet. Yep. Right? The the famous big sauropods, the stegosaurs, the ceratopsians, we didn't know about those yet. Which think about that. We, this is this is people living in a world without the knowledge of T-Rex. How sad. In fact, T-Rex will not factor into this story at all. T-Rex is not discovered until after this story is over. Dark times. Well, it was okay. <laughs> this is also a time where the American West was still being explored. Still a little wild. Right? We're, yeah, still a little wild. And there are some very wild West aspects <laughs> to this story. But let's meet our contenders. In this corner, coming from the great city of Philadelphia... Edward Drinker Cope was born in 1840 to a wealthy family. So he started out uh, rather well off in Philadelphia over the course of his life. He was a prolific writer and theorizer, uh, very verbose, uh, loved to, to theorize about the, the ways of the world. Notably, uh, Cope did not like Darwin's ideas. Oh, Cope was uh, has referred to as a leading neo-Lamarckian. Okay. Cope did not like natural selection, like a lot of scientists of that time period. Not a fan of natural selection, sought to explain evolution over time through different means. Over the course of his life, Cope was a member of the Academy of National Sciences in Philly, a professor at Haverford College. He served on the United States Geologic Survey with another man, uh, Joseph Lighty, who will be important later. And near the very end of his life, he was appointed president of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, which oh, wow. is the organization that publishes Science Magazine. That's impressive. S still to this day. Cope, I said he was a prolific writer, is alleged uh, to have published around 1,200 papers over the course of his life on paleontology and natural history, he described uh, more than a thousand species, uh, many of which were fossil, though not all, I believe, including 56 species of dinosaur, not all of which are still valid. <laughs> which, is, which is not surprising just due to the time. Like, yeah, that, that, that happens a lot. Yes. And when you're writing a bajillion papers... Believe it or not, you're going to make some mistakes. What? Interestingly enough, though, Cope is famous for his involvement in the dinosaur, you know, dinosaur research and things like that. He was particularly influential in herpetology and ichthyology. Cool. He did a lot of research on herps, so reptiles and amphibians, and fish. Although Cope is famous for his involvement in studies of ancient, you know, dinosaurs and reptiles and, and mammals of the past, he actually was particularly influential in the study of reptiles and amphibians, herpetology, Yay. and fish, ichthyology. Cool. And indeed, 
the American Society of Ichthyologists and Herpetologists journal is called Copia. Oh, it, it sure is. After Cope. That's named after him. That's cool. Yeah. Among his most famous discoveries, you know, fossil discoveries, uh, he named Lystrosaurus. Nice. The famous uh, early mammal relative, Champsosaurus. All right. Uh, Edaphosaurus, which is the one that's not Dimetrodon. Coelophysis. Hey, noteworthy. And famously, a sauropod genus Amphicelius, which has a couple of species, but one of them is famously the biggest dinosaur ever, if it was real. Uh, There's there's a whole story with Amphicelius. There are a couple of really big vertebrae that were recorded by Cope, but we don't know if they were actually like... Did you miswrite that? Because those are that's preposterously huge, and no one's ever seen these bones. So I've heard about that one. Yep. Yeah. Cope was uh, well off, very accomplished, published a whole lot, and quite a figure. Cope was well acquainted uh, over his life with lots of other famous figures, including uh, Charles R. Knight, the famous paleo artist, and Henry Fairfield Osborne. Now, this was a part where if we were in front of a live studio audience of paleontologists, mm-hmm. a murmur would go through the crowd. <laughs> Henry, Henry Fairfield Osborne. Os- Osborne. Uh, Osborne is, suffice it to say, a controversial and, and looming figure. Story's just getting better. And in this corner, hailing from Lockport, New York, born in 1831, Othniel Charles Marsh. Unlike Cope, Marsh was not born to a rich family. He was born to a poor family, but his uncle was wealthy. Uncle George Peabody. Good old Uncle Peabody. Peabody was a co-founder of J.P. Morgan & Co. Oh, wow. And I've seen him described as the father of modern philanthropy. Hmm. Peabody would eventually be uh, the the one who, who lends his name to the Yale Peabody Museum. Oh, wow. Yeah. Cool. Uh, Which is a cool place. Go to Yale. Check out the Peabody Museum. (laughs) Neat place. Lucky Charlie, Othniel, inherits money from George Peabody both when he comes of age and when Peabody dies. So he had some money coming in. (laughs) New money. New... (laughs) (laughs) Dresses like new money. (laughs) Unlike Cope, Marsh was totally on board with Darwin. Uh, Marsh was a Darwinist, as they would have called themselves back then. He also uh, renowned for having a fair amount of political prowess and influence. He gained a number of titles over his years. He was professor of paleontology at Yale uh, after graduating from Yale. He was curator of the Peabody Museum of Natural History at Yale. In the 1880s, he became president of the National Academy of Sciences and also in the 1880s, he was, he, beca- he was designated the official vertebrate paleontologist of the United States Geologic Survey. Wow. He was a big deal guy. Like, he, he held a lot of important positions. Yeah, doing stuff. His friends included uh, folks such as John Wesley Powell, who was a, sign- a director of the USGS and a significant force in early geological stuff here in America. Marsh's works included a measly few hundred papers and books in comparison to Cope's uh, bajillions. (laughs) Although some would contend 
Marsh included, that his work was more meticulous and more thorough and better because he took his time. Yeah, if you want something done right, you know, it's quality over quantity. (laughs) (laughs) Marsh's, and indeed, perhaps uh, as a credit to that, Marsh named more uh, uh, extinct species that have stuck around to fame today. Uh, He described the first pterosaurs in the U.S., he, uh, he, he, uh, we mentioned this back in episode 37 that he discovered toothed birds here in North America, Ichthyornis and Hesperornis, which was an incredible evolutionary discovery that earned him a compliment from Darwin. Oh, right. I remember that. Yep. Said, Hey, Marsh, good job. <laughs> you, you found something real cool. <laughs> Neat. He also, yes. <laughs> dear, my dear Othniel. Neat. <laughs> Charles Darwin. <laughs> Marsh also did a lot of work on horse evolution, and his list of dinosaurs that he named includes such familiar names as Triceratops, Stegosaurus, Apatosaurus, Brontosaurus, <laughs> uh, several others, Diplodocus, Ornithomimus, Taurosaurus. He gave us a lot of our familiar, famous dinosaur names. Yeah, as I say, those are much more popular names. Yeah, Allosaurus, Barosaurus, Ceratosaurus, Dryptosaurus. He did. Yeah, he Ceratosaurus? did. Oh, Ceratosaurus. Thanks, Marsh. There you go. He also now, uh, as as we'll get into, uh, he some of these names were also named by Cope, but then overruled. So he he named Dryptosaurus, Ooh. which Cope attempted later to name Lelaps, very famously, uh, which was famously painted in that fighting Lelaps. Yes, painting yes. by Cope's uh, one-time buddy Charles R. Knight, but the name Lelaps was eventually synonymized, sunk uh, due to priority with Dryptosaurus, if I remember correctly. So there you go. Cope and Marsh, two up-and-coming, uh, when, when, when the, the, early, the, late, the middle 1800s gives way to the late 1800s, these two men are poised to become big names in the field of paleontology. Already doing work at an early age. Marsh is off to Yale. Cope is already publishing. As a teenager, he's already publishing, writing papers. Undoubtedly, the two were uh, could have been familiar with each other, right? Paleontology is a small community today. Yes. Back then, even more so. And they first met in Germany while both studying abroad in 1864. And by all accounts... They were very cordial with each other. They met. They got along just fine. If I remember correctly, I read that Marsh showed uh, Cope around Berlin because Marsh studied in German universities for quite some time. So upon their first meeting, they appear to have just been two scientists meeting, getting along. So what happened? (laughs) What was the spark that initiated the rivalry? There are a few stories that you will hear as you go through, uh, I've picked three of them, sort of the three, the three big ones that come up rather often. Three stories that have been attributed to the reason for the rivalry. This is our, our Bone Wars Rashomon. Yes, and, uh, honestly, yeah. Mm-hmm. And in fact, right? I'm pretty sure Rashomon was mentioned in this book. Oh, that's fantastic. I think he actually does mention it. I don't remember if it was in, in light of the, in, in regard to how the, rivalry started yeah but yes wallace mentioned rashomon 
That's fantastic. <laughs> I need to. I still need to watch that movie. Rashomon is a movie about us. The same story being told from different perspectives. I was introduced to that trope in the Chinese movie uh, Hero, yes. Xiong, which was awesome. Anyway, yes. the first of the three stories is about Elasmosaurus. This is the famous uh, tale. In 1868, Cope named and described a plesiosaur, Elasmosaurus platyurus. Elasmosaurus, for those of you that don't picture it, is what you think of as the Loch Ness Monster. Yeah. Four big flippers, long neck, tiny head on the end of it, swimming in the Mesozoic Oceans. Famously, Cope put the head on the tail. Yes. Inferred that it had a short neck, plopped the head on the back, and a long tail, this mistake was corrected by Marsh and Joseph Lighty. Now, years later, Marsh would say, quote, When I informed Professor Cope of it, his wounded vanity received a shock from which it has never recovered, and he has since been my bitter enemy. Wow. End quote. Now, the context of that sentence we will bring up later. But suffice it to say, Marsh, at least, attributed that instance to the spark of the rivalry. Mm-hmm. Now, you'll notice that Marsh, that, that if that is the case, it paints Cope as a person who made a mistake and couldn't handle the criticism. Yep. And so lashed out. Yeah, Cope's a jerk. Jeez. Right? Man. But the other instance, the second instance... Uh, took place in Haddonfield, New Jersey. This is the same year. So Haddonfield, New Jersey is famous because, as I mentioned just a little earlier, it is where Hadrosaurus was found. The first complete dinosaur skeleton in the United States, in, in the Americas indeed. Cope worked there along with Joseph Lighty as part of the Academy of Natural Sciences. He also eventually moved there and lived there and did a lot of work in the marl pits that had all sorts of cool fossils to be found. In 1868, Marsh came to visit, and this was a time where Cope and Marsh were not rivals yet, and Cope showed him around, and they looked for fossils, and he introduced Marsh to all of the the pit leaders and such, and it seemed fine until Cope found out later that Marsh had gone back for private visits to the dig sites and paid the pit managers to let him know if they found fossils and send them to him instead of telling Cope. What? Man, Marsh is a jerk. (laughs) So Cope found out about this and became rather annoyed. And this is often cited as the or a spark that initiated their rivalry. Poor old Cope. Jeez, wow. Yeah, just, yeah, just just mean guys. (laughs) A third report comes from the Bridger Basin out west. In Wyoming and nearby states, the Bridger region is, these days, famous for fossils, especially things like Eocene big mammals, like the Uintatheres and such. In the early 1870s, Marsh and Cope both started doing work out there looking for fossils. Marsh apparently saw this region as his territory. Mm-hmm. For various reasons, he had laid claim to it, and he tried to put up, uh, you know, he tried to arrange agreements for other paleontologists who wanted to work out there, namely Cope and Lighty. He tried to make arrangements about who could publish, and hey, you know, these 
this area is an area that I'm working in and, you know, let me know if you're working out here kind of stuff. In the early 1870s, Cope went out and started searching for fossils, to which Marsh apparently took great offense. This was identified by Henry Fairfield Osborne. Oh, Osborne murmurs, murmurs. No. Uh, later on, Osborne wrote a biography of Cope, and he said in that uh, publication, quote, Thus began the intense rivalry in field exploration and the bitter competition for priority of discovery and publication, which led to an immediate break in the previously friendly relations between Cope and Marsh. Wait, now I'm confused. Which one do I dislike and which one do I like? (laughs) (laughs) It's funny because if you go back to sort of reports of those times, it is made rather clear that neither of these guys (laughs) were particularly good dudes. Yep. It's kind of the vibe that's coming off. (laughs) They were, yeah. It's when two jerks are calling the other one a jerk. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so, so, and in all likelihood, much like we've said about extinction events, there probably wasn't, like, one thing that set it off. It really does seem like there were several stages to this sort of buildup of the rivalry. It wasn't like in a movie where one thing happens and suddenly you're bitter rivals. Yeah. Well, it's <laughs> the way it makes me think is if you have a coworker that you that you just can't stand, you probably didn't just start out that way or there wasn't a moment. It's after days and days of you just not syncing up. You just not <laughs> clicking. That finally you're just like, I got with that person. Yep. It's just, over time, the annoyances compound. Is that the last donut with rain <laughs> with red, white, and blue sprinkles? <laughs> Sore. Now, up until this point, it really does sound like, you know, yeah, they were maybe miscommunicating with each other, right? Maybe going behind each other's backs and doing stuff. Maybe being, you know, rude, pointing out corrections. But up until this point, right, up until the start of the 1870s, there's not really anything dramatic going on. This is standard rivalry. Just them being rude to one another. (laughs) As the 1870s progress, they really start building up this competition and building up the the stuff for which they, they become famous. Infamous. The act, the bone wars begin. Now... A little bit more background here. This time period is called the Bone Wars, sort of famously and colloquially. It's also known as the Great Dinosaur Rush because the backdrop of the Bone Wars, sort of the stage upon which the Bone Wars was set, is this flurry, this gold rush-like flurry of work out in the plains, out in the badlands of the United States, looking for and finding dinosaurs. Yes. Uh, Not just dinosaurs, other organisms, but dinosaurs are really the famous stuff that comes out of here. Over the course of the 1870s, both men start doing a lot of digging out west in places like the Bridger region in Wyoming that I just mentioned, where they were finding ancient mammals, uh, uinta and and, and, you know, elephant-like creatures and rhino-like creatures. 
uh, primates-like creatures. Later on, they start getting into places like the Morrison Formation. Famous localities like Como Bluff. Morrison is Jurassic. So you're getting your big sauropods and your allosauruses and stegosauruses. Uh, Cretaceous-aged things where you're getting your triceratopses and some of your other famous pterosaurs and such. This work, uh, these two guys were spanning all across the West. Wyoming, Colorado, Kansas, Texas the Dakotas, Mm -hmm. spreading their resources all around the region. Sometimes they were out there on their own. Sometimes they were working via agents. Yeah. Paying men out there to do things for them. Yeah, I got a guy. Yeah, and they would. They would be paying. Well, you know, sometimes they would take uh, uh, expeditions out. Mm -hmm. Marsh Mm -hmm. was at Yale, so he could make, he could take expeditions of students and take them on these big trips and go out west and start digging other times they would prefer to stay at home i'm going to stay in yale and and write papers and you send me the fossils you find go forth my minions go forth and and bring back fossils once again i want to point out that this was not you know this is the late 1800s which means that working out west was much more treacherous than it is today indeed you're out in the badlands the summers are harsh and hot the winters are harsh and cold. There are story, you know, there's a story I read of Cope having to trek across the mountains to find a place to lodge for the night because his mules ran away. Uh, I found a story of, of Marsh getting caught in a stampede of bison. Ooh. Uh, the railroads were being built. In fact, some of the fossils were found by railroad, railroad workers. Makes sense. So the West is still being connected. And there were a bunch of Native American tribes out there that were accustomed to fighting European peoples. Yep. Uh, there is, I, I forget what the details were, but there is some correspondence between Marsh and General Custer. Whoa. Like, this is the time, like, there's open hostilities out west. Yeah, big name drop. So there's, there are a lot of dangers to working out west in addition to just the natural harshness of the, the environment. Yeah, the fact that you're digging in very wild wilds. Yes, so this is, you know, this is some cowboy stuff. <laughs> this is like like so many of the good, the good old days. It kind of sucked. Yeah, yeah, they weren't <laughs> as good as everyone makes them out to be. But this is sort of that old romanticized paleontology. Yes. Right, the day, you know... Barnum Brown and, and Sternberg and, and Schuchert and all those those old famous names. Bearded men in hats braving yep. the wilderness. Looking out across the Badlands. Yes. This is that. This is that time period. And it is during this time period, as the 1870s kick off, that the Bone Wars themselves get started in earnest. The wars were fought in the field, they were fought in the literature, and they were fought in the political, social realms that these men occupied. The game of bones. The game of, yeah, yes, the game <laughs> of bones. <laughs> and we'll dive right into some of the most ridiculous and infamous nonsense they got up to in just a moment. 
It was in the early 1870s that both Marsh and Cope became aware of sites like the Bridger Basin in Wyoming, the later 1870s that they became aware of sites like the Morrison Formation where all the dinosaurs were being found. So for that decade and beyond, they had a pretty much constant presence out west. As I mentioned, sometimes they would go out there themselves, but much of the time they were operating via other people. They had agent. People would say, so So the Cope, or Mar Marsh was famously contacted by two railroad, railroad workers who said, hey, we found fossils. Do you want them? And Marsh said, absolutely. I will send you money. You dig fossils and send them to me. And then he would send people over there. He'd be like, hey, man, they found, you know, do 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 Hey, go yeah, yep. over and find these guys and help them dig up fossils. Cope would do the same thing. So they had this, this, they were playing this real-time strategy game out west. A lot of the warring that went on out there happened by proxy. It wasn't these two guys standing on a hill with rock hammers swinging at each other. It was this, like, <laughs> military nonsense that they were pulling. <laughs> Paleontology stratego. Yeah. So they would hire diggers, uh, Marsh... And, and Cope both had their own sources of wealth to accomplish this. Find bones, dig bones, send them bones. And most of their diggers by this time were warned against the other guy. Wow. So if you worked for Marsh, you knew to keep Cope out of here. Cope was not allowed here. I found a bunch of fascinating tales <laughs> of what these, <laughs> these dudes got up to out west. So they would hire men not only to keep the other guy away, but also to spy on each other. So there are tales of each scientist's agents sneaking into the other guy's sites and spying on what they were working on and grabbing up fossils when they weren't looking. Mm -hmm. I read one account in my book of one group of Marsh's guys working in a quarry and put together uh, uh, associated bones, I think it was skull bones and teeth, from two different animals, and left them there, <laughs> knowing that Cope was watching. <laughs> and then Cope went in and found them and identified them wrong. <laughs> wow. That's, that is... <laughs> It's terrible, but that's hilarious. <laughs> oh, it's so, it's ridiculous. Uh, one of Marsh's spies, I, I love that they had spies. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, they would, like, um, there would be, there are stories of, you know, Cope would be out on a dig, and he would discover that some of the people on his crew were Marsh's men. Yeah, yep. Like, sleeper agents. agents. Yeah. yeah. And then he would try to bribe them to join his side. <laughs> He'd be like, hey, I know you're working for Marsh, but why don't you come on over and work for me? At least one time it worked. At least one person, one of those two railroad railroad workers switched sides. <laughs> <laughs> like, and then had to go up against his buddy. Oh, man. Like, they had to spy on each other. <laughs> oh, see, now I want to see that movie. <laughs> yeah, all of this. 
It was going to be a movie. You, you swore allegiance to Marsh. <laughs> <laughs> you betray us. Marsh apparently had a code name for Cope. He called him Jones. Like in <laughs> his correspondence, he was like, Jones cannot know about this site. <laughs> oh, wow. It's this. It. Oh, man. One of Marsh's spies, uh, n- known as Sam Smith, was apparently hired as a guide by Cope. And just spent a while leading him in the wrong direction. <laughs> like, leading him to places that were terrible. Wow. And then they would report back to Marsh. God, like, you'd be so paranoid. <laughs> and they were. One of, so one of the stories I found, uh, Marsh had a, an agent named Samuel Williston, who was so paranoid about Cope. Because, you know, Cope and Marsh would go out there sometimes. Mm-hmm. That uh, one day a man arrived at the camp in the late 1870s while they were working probably on dinosaur stuff. And Williston insisted on getting a handwriting sample (laughs) from the guy to confirm that he wasn't Cope in disguise. This is one step away from trying to rip off the man's beard. (laughs) Yes. yes, (laughs) Nice try, Cope. Oh, I'm so sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. That's so ridiculous. The two, another story that I, I read about the railroad guys are that one of the, I forget which one was, was which, but one of them locked the other one out of a station at one point. So he couldn't like bring his fossil finds mm-hmm, inside mm-hmm. and had to walk them to the next place. Wow. <laughs> like just these really underhanded jerky things to do. Yeah. Just, just making it as difficult as possible just making life miserable for each other most famously uh they got violent and destructive yes this is the part Uh, that i've always heard of now there is a famous account that before we get to the part you're thinking of (laughs) that that tells of rival teams dig teams throwing rocks at each other (laughs) (laughs) like this is what it devolved into no, you're stupid. A bunch of grown men <laughs> out in the Badlands throwing rocks at each other across the quarry. Wow. <laughs> science. Science at work, ladies and gentlemen. Science. <laughs> and all of this in the interest of just getting the most fossils. That's all this was about, was Martian Cope wanted to get the most fossils, get the fossils before the other guy did, make sure they weren't scooping each other because they were constantly trying to scoop each other constantly trying to get in and grab up the fossils so that the other guy couldn't so that they could name it before the other guy did find the good fossil site before the other guy did this was just the dirtiest paleontology field work you can imagine yeah it's it sounds what it what it always makes me think of is the prestige is yes. the movie The Prestige. If you haven't watched it, go watch it. Wolverine and Batman fight with magic. It's awesome. Don't Google it. Just watch it. Yes, just watch it, please. Um, It reminds me of that in so many ways, because it's just one of those where they were friends, then they weren't friends, and it just got worse. Just, <laughs> just ridiculous. Just got... Com- like, so many of these sound... Like if you put behind these events, it it sounds like it would just match so perfectly. Yes. And I believe so this was uh, I believe it was going to be a movie. 
I think I feel like one of the actors passed away and that's why mm-hmm. it fell through or something. The most famous thing that came out of this is that the workers were so concerned that of that the other guys men would come in and take their stuff that when they finished a site there are many numerous reports of the 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 diggers finishing a site and whatever was left either burying it again or smashing it to pieces yep so they would finish a site and go all right well we got all the dinosaur bones we can get destroy the rest this is the paleontology equivalent of salting the earth yeah <laughs> like this this is <clears throat> hardcore warfare this is ridiculous like that is this is the part that makes uh, uh, more than any of the uh, the rest of it modern paleontologists look back and cringe yes absolutely because it you, you, it's simply not done yeah that's just the most petulant it, it awful destroying fossils or reburying fossils just for priority yes is horrendous it, it, it's so in opposition to the way we think and do things today that it it's you know once again it sounds like a uh um cautionary tale that was made up like yes it sounds like an aesop's fable for yeah i was gonna say it's like a greek story <laughs> to learn a lesson but it's not. It happened. No. And it's for like real. 15 years. This For a long time. In the richest fossil sites uh, in the United States. Yeah, which always raises the question, who knows what was oh, lost? Yeah. Yep. We, we will never know. Uh, I've heard reports of, and I, I didn't find any substantiation for this. It, it, that doesn't mean that it's not true. I just didn't see it. For dynamite being used. I've to yep, demolish I've sites afterwards. I'm not sure. Again, there's a lot of apocryphal tales. Yeah, that that get thrown around with these these characters. But that that um, was the first time I ever learned about this. Was watching. Uh, I still have the VHS somewhere, but it was some dinosaur documentary, and they talked about the Bone Wars. And one of the scenes they showed was a a black and white video of uh, of a bunch of diggers blowing up a hillside with dynamite, and yep. referenced that. So it, it's <laughs> definitely the stories out there, at least. It's like a cartoon. It is. It it's is. It's like, like Wile E. Coyote and the Roadrunner. It's like all the Bugs Bunny cartoons making fun of the gold rush. Yeah. You know, like when Elmer and Bugs are both trying to get the piece of gold. <laughs> Cope season. Yeah. Now, which, yeah. Who, who's Bugs and who's Elmer depends on which of those original three stories you <laughs> buy into. <laughs> the rivalry did not just take place out in the field, though. Uh, there's a series of letters that they sent to each other in 1873, which has the two men bickering at each other, <laughs> accusing each other of stealing e- uh, stealing each other's fossils, communicating with people behind their backs. They also argued a lot in the literature. So finding fossils is one thing, but what they wanted to do was publish and name the fossils. Yeah immortalize themselves with them yeah exactly yes exactly they wanted the the rights they wanted to name fossils and so a lot of names came out of this time period the 1870s and 80s these two guys were publishing a ton of names and then arguing about who was right yes i loved the i saw that uh in the book i believe it was henry fairfield osborne 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 Osborne. Osborne. joked that 
a trinomial naming system arose in the Bridger excavations. <laughs> the first would be the name given to a fossil when it was discovered by Lighty, and then later both Cope and Marsh would name the same species something else. <laughs> 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 it's it's like having multiple family names when you have like three or four <laughs> middle names. <laughs> the early primate uh, or primate relative Notharctos was named by Lighty, and apparently it received at least half a dozen other names <laughs> over the course of this. The, the these men doing research out there. What I like to have options because they'll find a bone and go aha a new thing, and then they'd publish it. Yeah. Especially Cope. Yep. In his prolific publicating, pub, pub, publicating <laughs> record where you just snatching up bones and naming them. This species is attached to this species and this species is attached <laughs> to this species. They famously got into a literature fight in, I believe this was 1873, in the journal The American Naturalist, where they just, where they started going back and forth between issues complaining about each other's work <laughs> oh that that would have been a fun time to be subscribed to that <laughs> i've seen these sort of in the modern day oh yes but i've never seen them like this i have some quotes <laughs> thank you uh so marsh would pick on errors in cope's names and dates that he was like there were apparently inconsistencies in dates and names cope was citing and cope would complain about marsh uh here are a few quotes i pulled out of my book Marsh said, quote, in his references and dates, Cope also has shown the same inaccuracy that marred his scientific work. <laughs> the next month in Marsh, he said uh, Cope had published an article about a Uintafir named Eobacilius. And Cope said that the article offered, quote, no new facts on the subject, but some interesting additions to the list of errors I have pointed out in, in the same number. <laughs> it's this is like the 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 apex of polite you know bashing well it uh, the that stops here the next <laughs> month cope wrote among other things quote it is plain that most of professor marsh's criticisms are misrepresentations his systematic innovations are untenable and his statements as to the dates of my papers are either criminally ambiguous or untrue. <laughs> and then my favorite from June, Marsh retorts, Professor Cope's errors will continue to invite correction, but these, like his blunders, are hydra-headed, and life is really too short to spend valuable time in such an ungracious task. Wow. There are no gloves. You are too dumb for me to spend time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Every Woo! time I knock out one of your errors, two more take its place, and <laughs> I have work to do. And who, who has time for that? <laughs> this was in a journal. Like, this was them going back and forth in actual scientific publications. And it's so fun because of the way it had to be published that they weren't talking to each other, but about each other to other scientists. Yes, tell, tell Cope yeah. that I said. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh man. This rivalry also extended to the socio-political realm. Uh, notably, Cope 
reported, he wrote a letter, I, I don't remember to whom, uh, he met Thomas Henry Huxley. Now, Huxley is famous as Darwin's bulldog. Yeah. You know, this, this was a big, a student of Darwin's, a big proponent of Darwin's. So meeting Huxley was a big deal. That's, a, that's an important guy. Uh, and Cope noted that when he met Huxley, Huxley was cold towards him, perhaps due to comments that had been spread around by Marsh and other scientists. So they would go after each other's reputations. And then uh, the, the, the rivalry met another fever pitch. In the 1880s, after Marsh was uh, named the vertebrate paleontologist for the United States Geological Survey, brought on uh, working alongside John Wesley Powell, who we mentioned before, who was a director of the USGS, with these two men in the government position, Cope soon found that he had trouble getting funding <laughs> for his work. And then in 1889, he got a letter from the Secretary of the Interior that basically said, hey, a bunch of those fossils you collected that you have were on government land. So you have to turn those over to us. Whoops. And this not only did Cope attribute to meddling by Marsh and Powell. Also, Cope wasn't in a great place at this part of his life. He was struggling financially. And so this was a rough, this was mean. Yeah. <laughs> now, now it appeared that Marsh with his buddy Powell were using their political influence to interfere with Cope's work. And Cope responded by going to the papers. <laughs> Up until this point, all of this has been happening between the two guys in the scientific community. Mm -hmm. Out in the field, in the literature, but no one knew about it. It's yeah, just it, two ornery scientists. Yeah, only only they, their team members, and their friends would have had any way to find out because it's all happening out in the Badlands. Yes. Cope wrote to Osborne in light of this latest grievance in 1889. I love it. Quote, When a wrong is to be righted, the press is the best and most Christian medium of doing it. It replaces the old-time shotgun and bludgeon and is a great improvement. Oh, wow. Quote. So he contacted the New York Herald. Uh, Cope apparently had kept, over the course of his career, a journal of mistakes and misdeeds <laughs> by Marsh and his buddy Powell and proceeded to present them to the press. In January of 1890, on January 12th, the battle in the press began. Over the course of two weeks, Cope aired all his grievances, and then Marsh and friends got to respond. This is my favorite part. This is literally like the letters between Aaron Burr and Hamilton. Yes, it is. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> itemized disagreements. Yes, it is. Here's an itemized list of 30 years of disagreements. <gasps> now, the Herald sort of came at it as, because who cares about two scientists bickering? Yeah. But the Herald billed it as, hey, here's a well-known scientist who's questioning the integrity of these two government employees. Oh. These two men are in the USGS and we rely on them to do things. Are they incompetent? 
Yeah, now now we're uncovering corruption and and uh, of faulty political systems. Now I'm going to go to my book. Now, it is true that Cope and Marsh were, you know, stoking the flames, but the heralds did not help. The herald was all ready for sensation. Here is a sec- uh, uh, an excerpt from how the herald introduced the first story, Cope's Grievances Against Marsh. And I'm going to read this in that old-timey, like, 1920s news voice. Yeah. Because that's what you do. As you do. Ahem. Professor Cope of the University of Pennsylvania uses very strong English. He has instituted war to the knife and proposes to bury the blade to the hilt in the heart of his adversary. He is defiant, disdains innuendo, and deals in plain assertions. His assault is bold to the verge of recklessness and vigorous to the edge of audacity. He is either everlastingly right or infamously wrong. No compromise is possible. Someone ought to lose his reputation as a result of this fight. It's it's like the newspapers going between them and like, hey, so Cope, I heard Marsh talking some <laughs> trash. You know what? What would you say in response to that? Okay, cool. I'll go tell him. <laughs> Here's a knife. Do something with the knife. Yes. I'm not saying anything. I'm just gonna put this between you two, and I'm gonna leave. So Cope, so 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 Cope had successfully goaded this paper into just really getting into it. The first issue, Cope goes on this long rant where he accuses Marsh and Powell of plagiarism, of stealing credit from other scientists, of laziness and incompetence. Uh, Over the course of the, the issues, they get a bunch of other guys in to comment on Marsh. Like, to say nasty things about him. character witnesses. Yeah! Professor Williston. This was one of my favorites. I wrote this down. He said of Marsh, quote, I never knew him to do two consecutive honest days work. Whoa! (laughs) They're like really nasty attacks. Not the job reference you want to have. No! Later on, Marsh got to respond. And Marsh retorted by calling Cope a liar, Mm -hmm. uh, also a thief. He claimed that he stole fossils right out of museums, that he would just (laughs) walk out of museums with fossils. Uh, This is where he brings up the Elasmosaurus story. Mm -hmm. That quote Mm -hmm. I mentioned earlier where he said, all of this started because I corrected his mistake and he was a, you know, he was too vain. Yes, he was a a poo-poo head. <laughs> um one of the things that that Marsh says that I find delicious is he claims that Cope uh in attacking America's premier paleontologist that <laughs> being Marsh uh in <laughs> Now in Marsh's defense he was I believe the first professor of paleontology in the country and the U. The government paleontologist. Yeah, yeah, no, no. I mean, so he's not necessarily not, wrong. It's not that you're wrong. <laughs> it's man, he is rude and he's a liar, and he's doing that to me, everyone. <laughs> to me. Can you believe he's, it? He says that in these attacks, Cope has quote devoted some of his best years, <laughs> end quote, and quote. It may thus be regarded as the crowning work of his life. 
<laughs> but then I've got another one. Where's my other Marsh quote? Oh yeah. So he <laughs> Um so Marsh goes on this long answer rant, right? He he responds to Marsh to, to Cope's criticisms, pokes at him every chance he gets. This is and, this is the the eighteen hundreds equivalent of a Facebook comment thread. Yeah, they're having it uh, having it out in the forums. I, I commented yesterday and I didn't check till today and I saw everything you said and now here's everything I think about what you said from yesterday. <laughs> yes, and each comment gets longer and longer. <laughs> uh Cope or Marsh in his ranting compares Cope to a Russian paleontologist named Kowalevsky, who apparently was also controversial that Marsh didn't like him and he did all sorts of bad things. And he compares Cope to Ko- Kowalevsky and says, quote, Kowalevsky was at least stricken with remorse and ended his unfortunate career by blowing out his own brains. Cope still lives unrepentant. Wow. <laughs> Kowalevsky has beliefs. Cope has none. Yeah. <laughs> of note, oh my Kowalevsky did not shoot himself. He chloroformed himself to death. But the, the sentiment stands. Yeah. Unrepentant. Unrepentant. Why don't you die like that Russian guy? It's It literally <coughs> is a comment thread. <laughs> You're dumb. Why don't you kill yourself? Wow. And this is in the paper. Like, this, is, <laughs> this isn't like in their personal letters. This is in the press. Yes. My favorite, I think the quote that I find most emblematic of this ridiculous, ridiculous fiasco came from Powell. So John Wesley Powell was also accused in Cope's rantings. And so he responded (coughs) and he says the following. And I think that this is just paints the most beautiful picture of the tone of these conversations. (laughs) Quote, the paper to which I am now replying is sufficient evidence to any fair minded man that professor Cope's, Mental and moral characteristics unfit him for any position of trust and responsibility. In addition to his great vanity, which leads him into vicious species work, he is inordinately jealous and suspicious of every other worker, and these two traits combined give him that hysterical temper and gift of voluble denunciation rarely found in persons of his sex. Oh... You play ball like a girl. That's, uh, wow. These are men in their 50s. These are, this is ridiculous. Like, <laughs> it's, and it's, it's, the funniest part about it is every time one of them comes out to call the other one a jerk, they just become more of a jerk. Yeah. <laughs> like, I think you're really stupid and I'm sexist. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> and I want you to die. <laughs> This wow. went on for two weeks over I'm... several issues of the Herald from the 12th <laughs> through the 26th of January, back and so- forth. Someone in the Herald got a promotion. <laughs> <laughs> now, reportedly, other scientists saw this and were shocked and appalled, as well they should be. This is an embarrassment. Yeah. One, I could also... Wouldn't be surprised if there was that moment of like, you know, oh, Cope's in the paper. I've read some of his work. Let's see what the wow. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Not what I was expecting from you, Cope. 
So much like they would be if this happened today, paleontologists were not pleased. This was embarrassing. Also, Wallace in this book goes to to length to point out that this doesn't really seem to have made a huge splash in the public eye. That the Herald spent a lot of time on it, but bigger papers didn't really comment much on it. Yeah. It wasn't like it was what everyone was sitting down next to the radio to 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 eagerly hear the next tidbit. Right. It didn't hit make the big splash that you know, perhaps Cope and Marsh had wanted their comments to. <laughs> it's a big deal for us. <laughs> Yeah, it's important to me. (laughs) So this was the culmination. This was the sort of the last hurrah of the Bone Wars in the start of the 1890s after decades of this arguing back and forth. After this, as the men near the end of their career, looking back over it, it is hard to conclude that it was a good idea. (laughs) both men had used the majority of their wealth over the course of these battles they had both uh, to some degree or another ruined their reputations a little bit yeah now granted i mean they still held high positions they were still acclaimed scientists but it's hard to keep you know friends when you act the way that they were acting yeah it's it well that's we we mentioned this in the the fake fossils episode i believe that when stuff like this happens in the scientific community it's not like we're all part of a club and we can revoke your membership but we can all just simultaneously agree to no longer interact with you yes we you you you're just shunned you are you we go all right you know what you are not a reliable scientist you are we're we are all just going to forget you were part of the community to begin with and move on. So like you can just be kind of excommunicated via unanimous agreement. And indeed in 1892, Marsh was forced to resign from the United States geological survey. Now, whether or not this was a direct result of this was two years after the, the whole fiasco Mm -hmm. in the Herald, how much that impacted it. Who's to say probably didn't help. Probably didn't help. Cope finally passes away in 1897, Marsh only two years later, and with that, the Bone Wars officially ends, as the two men are no longer there to fuel it. But it did leave behind an indelible, I don't know what that word means, an irrevocable (laughs) mark on the field of paleontology. Well, I I feel like this is very comparable. Uh, I don't remember who it was it was at some point when we were both at school there in tennessee a person came to uh talk about the history of the debate of evolution oh that was um the social the sociology guy yep whose name i don't remember the professor Uh, yeah but he he did a presentation on how has the 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 social you know, both among scientists and among the public, discussion of evolution changed over time. What was it like when Darwin presented it? How has the public perception of it shifted and the debate shifted? And when did it first become controversial and all that sort of stuff? But the part that really stuck with me was the end of his presentation. He had a number of, uh, you know, these social surveys dealing with 
different issues and showing that when you break down, you know, the, the population, the vocal portions of the avidly for and avidly against are actually very small percentages. Yep. Well, you have you have two large blocks of I like it and I don't like it, but I don't care enough to be a jerk about it. And then you have two <laughs> small percentages of I'm a jerk about most things and I'm going to be a jerk about this. And then you have a percentage in the middle who doesn't care. This feels like that to where it's like paleontology was going on and then there are these two jerks. Yep. Just jerking it up around. Just the but West. they were the loud, obnoxious, grandiose ones, so they're the story that is now known from that era above, basically, the rest. Like, that's that's the famous story from that, that fossil rush time. Oh, yeah. Some of the side effects. Um, Joseph Leidy, who started out his career, well, earlier in his career, by discovering Hadrosaurus, the first complete dinosaur skeleton in the U.S., well done. Left paleontology in the 1870s because yeah. he couldn't put up with it. <laughs> he Which, had neither the money nor the will, as one source uh, put it, to keep up with Martian Cope. He, now, he went off to then study microbes and anatomy and, and diseases and mineralogy. Like He did a bunch of cool stuff. Well, he left mean, fossils. I mean, you know, cool. Cool. Yeah, cool. cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I feel bad for him. That's what I'm going to say. The Bone Wars did give us a bunch of discoveries. Uh, not only did the, the two warring men find a lot of great fossil localities, uh, the Bridger Formation, the San Juan Formation, Puerco, they did a lot of work in the Morrison. Beforehand, there were about nine dinosaur species known in North America. Over the course of their careers, Marsh named 80 new genera and Cope named 56. Wow. And of those, about a quarter are still valid. Which, like, that's that's not a huge survival <laughs> rate for, but I mean, that's still a bunch. That's, yeah, it's still, we, that we got Apatosaurus, Diplodocus, Stegosaurus, Triceratops, Coelophysis, um, those early toothed birds, like all that, and, and a bunch of early mammal stuff, all that really seminal research, that really, you know, foundational research got done during this time period. On the other hand, paleontology has spent the last century or so cleaning up after that research. Yeah. All those names had to be sorted out because they made a bunch of mistakes. <laughs> uh, famously, Apatosaurus, right, was split into Apatosaurus and Brontosaurus, which was later corrected and then late more recently maybe uncorrected. But the research mess is is complementary to the physical mess as you mentioned before we do not know how many fossils were destroyed and sabotaged yeah during the field work of the bone wars they were smashing fossils and reburying fossils yep and that's awful well it's because we have we have fossil tragedies in history that we've mentioned before like the loss of the original spinosaurus egypticus yep. Yep. You know, that was bombed. But that's one of those situations where we had it, and then it was tragically lost due to warfare. Right. But it, you know, it was, we knew that dinosaur was a dinosaur. These are things where these never made it to the light of day as far as science is concerned. And it was, and they were smashed intentionally. Yes. You know, if I, if I can't have the these point. fossils, nobody can. 
Yeah, it's. I mean, it, this is the uh, fossil equivalent of of book burning, basically. Of yes, <laughs> like it's dest- destroy this so no one else's eyes may see it. It's horrendous. I've seen it argued that uh, this had a negative impact on American paleo represent uh, reputation in other parts of the world. Yeah, I'm sure Europe was just looking over like, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing? We let you have your own country for one century. Yeah. And this is what you do with it. <laughs> it's just them coming. I was like, hey, we found these really cool things in the ground. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> I've never shown you anything cool again. Yeah. On, yes. On second thought, let's not go to America. It is a silly place. Uh, Wallace, in his book, also argues that Powell, that, that the, the, the Bone Wars may have interfered with Powell's plans for sustainable Western development. Oh, wow. That he had these grand plans for how to expand into the West and that the Bone Wars messed it all up. So that's a possibility. It was... Oops. Yes, we discovered a lot, but at, but at what cost? <laughs> what did it cost? <laughs> Everything. It wasn't that bad, you know. I mean, we did. <laughs> we, we we have been able to recover to some degree from it. So there you have it, folks. The Bone Wars have been featured in a lot of books. Um, there was a, an episode, I think, of Drunk History about yes. the Bone Wars. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was supposed to be a movie and maybe a TV show. I don't know what the status of those things is currently. I'd be uh, happy with a movie. I I don't know about a TV show. You know, it's one of those things where usually when someone tries to make a fictional adaptation of something, especially something historical that I care yeah. about, I'm I'm a little iffy. I'm like, uh, what are you gonna uh, you gonna I, what are you gonna hype it up and make yeah, it all sensational?" Yeah, I appreciate the sentiment, but I'm nervous. Yeah, this. How can you make it worse? Well, it's also one of those things where it's like you can't fit all of this into a movie. This is a movie already. <laughs> Yeah, there's spies and sabotage, and there's there's people throwing rocks at each other. Yeah. Okay, do you want to do it in a montage, or are you going to pick and choose <laughs> which instance of sabotage you're going to show? Gee, this this is so. This book again, in case you're interested, there are lots of books on this, but this is the one that I have. Uh, there are many like it, but this one is mine. Is again called "The Bone Hunter's Revenge" by David Raines Wallace. I'll put a, a link to, uh, to mm-hmm. it in the blog post at the very least. And I think that's enough of that. Yeah, it, I mean, it's a ridiculously dramatic event that the more you say it, sounds like a, a extremely well written story. Yes, Michael Crichton actually wrote a, a, a semi fictionalized story oh, yeah. about the Bone Wars. Yeah. I haven't read it, but I, I, I've heard of it. As always, we have barely skimmed the surface of this story. There are lots of things we we haven't... We, sometimes we do these episodes and I fully expect to get emails and messages from people who are like, you didn't mention my favorite story about mm-hmm. Martian Cove. I know. There's so much. <laughs> well, I'm sure they'll come up again. Um, but this is also... It's funny. This is also one of those instances where... Anyone who comes up and is like, here's my favorite story about Marsh, I'm going to be like, are you sure? Just, there's so many, like, there's so many tall tales about these guys. I don't know what to believe. <laughs> it's, it's like your, your, uh, Greek tragedy, uh, analogy is a really fitting one. It's very, the, the, uh, 
Trials of Hercules. George <laughs> is like, are you sure that's a story about him doing that? He scooped a lot of poop? That's a story? <laughs> this, this is one of those where it's like, really? Yeah. Really, that's a thing that's documented that they did. And some of them are. There's a whole thing about Cope's skull <laughs> after he died. It's, yeah, it's a, someday it's I'm sure we'll talk more about these gentlemen. <laughs> In any case, they were ridiculous. Were they good for paleontology? Were they bad for it? Yes. <laughs> but that's all that we have time to talk about that for this episode. Before we wrap it up, we have a patron question to answer. Woohoo! If you're a patron of a certain level, you get the opportunity to ask us questions that we will answer on the podcast. And we haven't done one of these in a while, so let's do it. This episode's question comes from Brandon, who asks, and this is a two-part question for our two-part <gasps> podcast, is there any fossil evidence for crocodilian predation on humans or human ancestors? <laughs> and, for David, presumably... Is there any evidence out there for ancient envenomation? Such good a, question. Such a good question. Oh, Will, Crocs? The answer is yes. Oh. So, as many of you probably know, there's modern examples of crocodilian predation on people all the time. Now, most species are not actually that ridiculously aggressive and dangerous. Like, it's not just worldwide. But Nile crocodiles and Indo-Pacific crocodiles, the saltwater crocodile, the estuarian crocodile, it's got a lot of names. <laughs> those actively hunt us. Yeah, those so are people. In modern days, we know of two species for sure that see us as an easy food item. So it would make sense that it would happen in the fossil record. And indeed, there is evidence. Crocodilus anthropophagus which, if you know your Latin, <laughs> means eater of humans. <laughs> Human eater. Oh my Human goodness. eater. How's that this, for a namesake? This is a crocodile that's named for it. <laughs> this is a fairly recent croc, just, just under 2 million years ago, 1.84 million years ago, that is from Tanzania in the Olduvai Gorge site. Famous early hominin site. It's a, it, well known, and it is a site that in, contains uh, various hominins, uh, Hobo, Homo habilis and, and Australopithecus boisei have both been found here. And there have been remains found with crocodile bite marks on some of these hominin bones that suggest our ancestors and relatives were being eaten by this crocodile who was potentially up to 19 feet long. Ooh, salty-sized. Which is about as big as they get today. So yeah. that's that's a big crocodile. So this is absolutely a man-eating-sized yeah. crocodile and was probably the biggest predator of that area during that time. So this would have been the dominant predator, at least of the waterside areas. And it sure does seem like it was eating us peoples. Fascinating. Awesome. <laughs> My response is much less interesting because the short answer is, uh, um, <laughs> much like Crocs eating peeps, uh, it is almost, I mean, obviously things have been envenomating things for a very long time. Yep. There is evidence of potentially of venomous organisms in the fossil record. Uh, you know, if you find 
the fangs of a of a viper of a, you know venomous snakes are needle like for the yeah. delivery of venom. There have been fossil shrews and lizards that that show the grooves that we associate with venom delivery in their teeth. There's at least one genus of dinosaur that has been proposed to have been venomous, although this is not substantiated. This is not not spitting it, not spitting it, but the grooves in the teeth, although that's not definite. <laughs> and then I believe that there are a number of insects preserved well enough in the fossil record and other arthropods that you could see venom glands and such. Oh, cool. But I don't know of any evidence for envenomation for something being envenomated in the fossil record. Uh, and I don't know, it, it would be hard to get evidence for that because the actual bite or sting is all soft tissue. Yes. That's, you know, you're going to get bit in the leg or something and that's not going to show up on the bone. There's no reason for that bite to go into the bone. And I don't know of any venoms that have notable impact on bone, right? Venoms, you know, snake venoms in particular, for example, tend to attack the nervous system and the respiratory system and the blood and tissue. But I don't know of venoms that attack bone, bone marrow, it, certainly, but yeah, to have a physical change to the fossil bone. And even if you got like degrading tissue... That's what I was thinking with, like, a necro... In, like, an imprint or something. Mm -hmm. I don't know how you would know that it was a venom thing. Mm -hmm. the, only the only thing I can think of that you could see definitive evidence of envenomation would be amber. Insects yes. and amber. Yeah. And I know there has been... There's been at least one uh, example of a spider having caught a wasp in oh, cool. amber, which is super cool. There's a good chance that wasp got envenomated. <laughs> um i don't or was know about to or it's about to be yeah <laughs> all those centipedes centipedes are venomous so i don't know if you could test for that in the 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 the, the fossil itself i don't know mm -hmm. if there would be a leftover molecular signal or if you could look at deformities in the body that would show you that it was envenomated would that happen quickly enough you know I don't know. I don't know of any examples of envenomation in the fossil record, and I suspect it would be very difficult to find good evidence for it. But mm -hmm. it happened. It must have happened. Otherwise, there'd be no venom today. Yeah. It had to have been useful. Yeah, they had to be doing something with it while they were developing it. Indeed. The only thing I can think of is I, I watched a documentary at one point about venomous animals, and someone got bitten by a stiletto snake which is a really cool, awesome venomous snake that has sideways hingy fangs. Sure does. Instead of down. They're super cool. They, it very quickly rocketed up my list of favorite snakes. <laughs> but it has a, a necrotoxin, which is attacks the flesh, not the nerves. And so this is this is the stuff that like starts to digest you, basically. It's like it's breaking you down. Yeah. And they wrapped he got like hit in the thumb and they like wrapped it and when they finally opened it up and like we're going to go do surgery or try to figure it out it had started to dissolve the bone it had started to eat away at the digits oh so like maybe but i don't know how you would distinguish that it was due to venom versus anything else yeah like mm. it would probably just look like it was eroded or partially digested yeah so yeah, like that's the that's the only instance I've ever seen that made me think that I thought of when I read this question. 
Well, if any of our sciency listeners know of anything, let us know. Fascinating question, Brandon. Thanks for asking. Yeah. Thanks again to Ryan, Jonathan, Brendan, Jester, Mark, and Cheryl for suggesting the topic of this episode. Thanks again to our newest patrons, Jose and Angie. Thanks again to all of our other patrons and to all of our listeners for your consistent support and listenership. I had a great time with this episode. This was super yes. fun. It was so much fun. I got to read a book. It was it was good times. <laughs> Hopefully you've enjoyed this episode. As always, feel free to send us your suggestions, questions, comments for our future work. As always, we will have additional links and info and photos on the blog post. Check that out. Patrons, keep an eye out for those bonus goodies we mentioned coming up on Patreon. We'll have bonus news up there. We'll have some episode director's notes. And as always, we release new episodes every fortnight. Mm-hmm. Episode 59, coming soon to a podcast near you. I think that's all the stuff. Is that all the stuff? Sounds good to me. Cool. Well, listeners, be kind to your colleagues. Don't be a jerk. Don't destroy fossils. Be excellent to be, one another. Be excellent. Be, don't forget to be awesome. Rock on. Garth. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.